Welcome to the CCM Deep Dive Podcast as we go song by song and story by story through some of Christian music's most influential albums with the artists who created them. It's time to grab your coffee and settle in. Let's go. That was that was bait. That was so so such bait. Welcome to season two with Jennifer Knapp, the charming and polarizing folk rocker, born in a rural farming community who almost went to the University of Kansas, but was thankfully saved by common sense. <laughs> I, I knew there had to be a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> In 1998, Goatee Records released Jennifer Knapp's major label debut album, Kansas, which went on to be certified gold, meaning it sold over half a million albums and earning her the 1999 Dove Award for New Artist of the Year and the 1999 Dove Award for Rock Song of the Year. But before all of her world tours, before her recording contracts and sold out shows, and even before she became a Christian in college. Yeah, pretty much simultaneously as starting my Christian music career. Kind of weird. Before all of that, we need to start in her hometown of Chanute, surrounded by golden wheat fields in the southeast corner of Kansas. Yeah, no, but I think the thing I the thing I think about the most, actually, and it's probably colored by my life now or where, you know, where I've ended up. But, um, you know, I grew up in a small town of I think about at the time I was growing up, it kind of vacillated between eight and ten thousand people, depending on the decade. Um, pretty quiet, cozy town. My graduating high school class was like 115 or something like that. So you kind of know everybody, you know, like especially in your social circle as a kid, you you have you kind of know the the four the four years around you in your school. You just get to know everybody's name at least to a degree. Um, and then my family, on top of it, I mean, well, I think geographically, I would say that can like Chanute might my hometown was two hours from anywhere. So two hours from Tulsa, two hours from Wichita, two hours from the Kansas City area and, you know, an hour from Pittsburgh. And even at the time when I went, ended up going to school there in the early 90s, I think the population of Pittsburgh, Kansas was still kind of sleepy. It was around 35 to 40,000, somewhere in there. And I think that probably included the students. So, you know, but even then, to me, I considered Pittsburgh, a, a quote unquote, a big town because it had a mall, you know, like it had a little, you know, it had a more than one, you know, used car lot. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, growing up in Chinook, it just kind of felt like I was, you know, two hours from anywhere and my family didn't travel a lot. We were, you know, largely a blue collar family. So we were subsistence living and you get up, you know, the, the view that I saw, that's all to say is the view that I saw were people who got up on Monday morning and went to work until Friday night. And we took care of the farm on Saturdays and Sundays and just kind of hit the ground running again on Monday. And, um, one of the things I remember about growing up was that, uh, my, my, I had an aunt who ended up, uh, moving to Europe, living in Switzerland, having her family there. And I remember 
stay, spending the weekends with my grandmother and there were postcards that she would send from her when she was traveling, when she in her younger days. And one of the postcards that was on the bookshelf, I mean, these were remarkable, right? Like it was remarkable for my family to have a, like a spoon collection from another state. I mean, we just didn't really travel out of state, let alone two hours away. It was, it was a financial burden to put all that money that got, you know, the gas money to go up there. We didn't have a lot of reason to kind of travel to other cities. We wouldn't have thought about shopping in other cities. And so, you know, my grandmother had this postcard in her in the bedroom where I would stay, and it was uh, of the Sid- Sydney Opera House because my grand or my because my aunt had traveled to Australia and sent a postcard back. And I just remember laying and in bed at night looking at that postcard, thinking about you know this is someplace I would never see in my life. Jennifer would not only travel to Australia one day, but she would eventually take up full time residency there. But that's later on in her story. I just never really kind of imagined that I would see any parts of the world and, you know, you know, skip ahead years later when I got my first uh, out of state gig. Uh, I think it was right, like 92, 90, uh, probably 93 or 94. My first out of state gig was in Chicago and I flew, I, I drove up to Kansas City and I got on my first plane ever. I mean, I'd never even been to an airport. I mean, it's not that I wasn't familiar with it and that people didn't fly, but I never did. Through those early years of playing around small towns throughout the Midwest, Jennifer gathered enough material to record two independent albums before Kansas, Circle Back in 1994 and Wishing Well in 1996, which included an acapella song titled Faithful to Me, which, for most of the world, was how they were first introduced to Jennifer when it was chosen to be the opening track on Kansas. Yeah, uh, there are a couple of things I think about with this song, but I mean, I, I definitely it was it was one of the older songs for the record. Um, it was it wasn't like a, one of the new songs. I kind of had a few songs under my belt. So because uh, what I remember about it was is two things. One is I'm pretty confident that I wrote the lyrics on the back of a sonic receipt. So like a Sonic hamburger receipt while I was driving down I-35 in my 1980-something Ford Ranger pickup truck coming back from Nebraska doing a gig. So I was out doing gigs already and just spending hours and hours alone. And I was just singing. I just started singing that song kind of a cappella. And because I didn't, I wasn't a, a very good guitar player at the time, it was, it was, I, I even though I liked the melody and the tune, it was quite difficult for me at that time to think about putting any backing track to it. So I don't know. It just kind of stuck with me. I liked it and I remembered it enough to write it down. And I, I never really even thought that I'd ever kind of play it for other people. But it wasn't until I heard uh, a Tracy Chapman cut that was on her first record with Fast Car. I think it's the song was called Behind the Wall or something like that. And it's an acapella number she did on her record. And when I heard that, I was like, "Oh wait, like I I can I can put this somewhere." It, some, it, it seemed like the song was meaningful to me, and it would be meaningful to other people. And for that reason, I think I championed it to kind of go on the record to see if I could kind of pay an homage to to Tracy's uh, acapella version. And I think uh, I want to say that uh, my name is Luca. There was um, another who did that song. I'm trying to remember. Uh, Suzanne Vega. I think Suzanne Vega also had an acapella song. And so, yeah, those two artists were like, oh, I can do this too. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why it kind of gave me encouraged to kind of not just let it sit on the back of a sonic napkin. So in the late 1950s, Willie Nelson used to write songs driving from his hometown of Fort Worth, Texas to Nashville, 
but without the convenience of a sonic receipt. He thought that if he could remember a melody for the entirety of the nine-hour drive, then it was a strong enough melody to record. And the same with the lyrics. That thought process was also true for Jennifer. Yeah, it's a great thing to remember, because if you don't remember it, it's not going to be memorable to anybody else for sure. And it, it just won't leave you like and I do sometimes panic if I get an idea and I don't write it down. But at the end of the day, like that's been true. Like the, even the things that I've written down, I go back to and kind of go, I don't even know what that means or what it's about. And I just leave it. the chisels I have dulled carving idols of stone that have crumbled like sand neath the waves. I've recklessly built all my dreams in the sand just to watch them all wash away. Through another day, another trial, another chance to reconcile to one who sees past all I see. And reaching out my weary hand, I pray that you'd understand you're the only one who's faithful to me. You're the only one who's faithful to me. According to Jennifer, when she first signed with Goatee Records and started to write the Kansas album, she was still learning her way around the guitar. The song that followed Faithful to Me was Whole Again, and that gave her the opportunity she needed to grow as a musician. You know, this for me, this is like a, a song that I think about, like, what was like developmental guitar wise. Like, so keeping in mind, like a lot of these songs for me were very early on, like they were like the first time I wrote a song of this ilk ever. <laughs> and so I, I remember with whole again, like just thinking like exercising the use of a capo. So it was one of the, the times that I first did that and realizing that I could make adjustments to my playing skill by changing where the frets were on my guitar. Because uh, I really only knew some basic forms at that time, like in the G, you know, kind of the G, C, D kind of mode and maybe some minor things. For the non-musician, using a capo on the neck of a guitar shortens a string so that an easier chord structure like an A chord would now sound like a B chord, which is a bit more cumbersome on the fingers or a D chord to sound like an E chord. It's just a quick and easy way to expand the number of chords at your disposal. And I think it, the other part of it in particular too is that I didn't, I was aware that I didn't want to just be one note in what I was playing. Like I would notice like, when I saw other people playing solo acoustic stuff and I'm like, oh my God, all these songs sound the same, you know, it's the same strum pattern or something like that. So on, this was a song that I remember making some effort and I didn't really know what hammer-ons or pull-offs were at the time, but this was one of the first times where I went, what happens if I articulate the chord with my left hand, you know, while I'm doing the strum pattern with my right? And so it, it, what it created, I think Whole Again stands out, like the first time you hear this song, it is the hammer-on uh, of the A, I think it's an A minor 7 chord, 
um, capo and three. <laughs> and those are all these elements of my guitar playing skills that I was experimenting the time. And I think, you know, and then I slid it up. I had no, idea, and I slide that up, I think to the D form, which leaves an F sharp in. So actually leave the A7. If you think about an A7 in that form where you're just articulating the E and the C and playing the rest of them open, and then you slide it up a whole step up to where the D and the F sharp come into play of that formation. I was like, oh, I can move these things. So even just the idea that I can hold a form and then move it up my guitar neck were revelations to me at the time and what I could do with my left hand and my right hand and in moving the chord form. So that's that's absolutely what Hole Again speaks to. That might sound like a lot of guitar speak for some, but in a nutshell, it's what gives a guitar in Hole Again the cool percussive sound, creating that distinctive rhythm pattern found throughout. The opening line of the song, Daddy, Daddy, Do You Miss Me?, Sounds like it could have been pulled from her diary. But is it about her earthly or heavenly father? Oh, I think both. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I mean, personally, like, like, I was coming out of one of the things that made my transition into college so challenging is I essentially moved out of home without a plan. Um, I was kind of dealing with the loss of, loss of the relationship between my father and I, who are now estranged. Uh, and that kind of happened subtly for me. I just realized like it was a relationship that I couldn't rescue. And when you're 18 or 19 years old, that's a hard thing to kind of stomach. And I, I think one of the the metaphors that Christianity offers sometimes is God the Father. And I think it took that seriously. Uh, it kind of wasn't really ultimately satisfying me in that way. It was a little bit too much on the nose or a little too much literal. Like, I don't have an earthly father, so I want a spiritual father. Like, it just doesn't, I don't want to make fun of that for anybody else. But for me, that was just a little bit too much. Like, I couldn't really quite dig into that. But I didn't really, at the same time, I think in my writing, I didn't really want to resist the idea that sometimes when we say something like that, that we're actually meaning both at the same time or like swimming in between the two. So I, I, I love the ambiguous nature of it that for me, I think at times when I, when I sat down, right, right down whole again, I think the pain came from my earthly experience, you know, you know, did my dad miss me? Was he thinking about me when I'm over here kind of like, you know, regretting this relationship. And I think that's the context of that verse, but I think it works well. And I didn't kind of hesitate to see that. I think that a lot of people saw that in that Christian light. And I appreciated that in the sense where I could put a little of myself in that without necessarily having to reveal that this was really from a very real source of pain. And I didn't mind that it gave other people some reason to kind of go along with it. So I think that definitely taught me kind of early on that you don't have to be absolutely, you don't have to insist that what it means for me is what it has to mean for other people, but it does have to be net. You know, I, I certainly did want it to be navigated in a spiritual context. I mean, I was working out a spiritual problem. Where do I get my comfort when I'm unsettled in our relationship or the situation between two points of intimate contact, right? What, it, what are those things that we cry out? So I didn't, I didn't really want to make those literal or biblical in that sense. I, so I was w- strangely drawing from a very personal experience, but then being able to all of a sudden, you know, kind of, it, it kind of is able to transform into to kind of like a wider, more spiritual context. Thank you for listening as we are just beginning this journey through Jennifer Knapp's major label debut album, Kansas. Please join us next week as we dive into Undo Me.
Standing, my thorns notwithstanding, I cry. 